On the board are just two thoughts about chapter 37 through the end of the book of Genesis. Many compare the material about Joseph to the wisdom literature of the Bible, like Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Job. And I say it that way, and that is, this is, by the way, not an original thought with me, but the idea is the things that Joseph modeled and that are said of Joseph exemplify and illustrate, lived out, what the wisdom literature is saying. Wise choices, deep-seated commitment to God, clarity of understanding of what is really important in life, and a willingness to allow God to guide through difficult circumstances, all covered by implicit trust in God. Joseph, Joseph had that implicit trust in God. He is not a circumstance-controlled man. He's a man who is controlled by God, and he's committed to that. The other thing, and it's the other side of that vertical line, is um, there is a remarkable parallel between Joseph's life and Daniel's life. And I think you all know who Daniel is, don't you? And it's only in, I mean, the circumstances are different, but yet there's some parallel. They both uh, are in situations of foreign pagan, if you will, certainly non-covenant people. For Joseph, it's Egypt. For Daniel, it's, it's Babylon and then later Persia. And yet you see in both of these men, being in those pagan cultures, they never compromised their faith. They never compromised their commitment to God. In some cases, they had to pay for that. Certainly Joseph did for a period. He ended in jail and all that stuff. And Daniel, you know, among other things, he ends up in the lion's den. <laughs> For a period of time, a brief period of time, but that uncompromising uh, commitment to God, integrity, uh, a character set of character traits that everyone in leadership should emulate, Joseph and Daniel. So they're just this this material now from here um, to the end of the book is focused on Joseph. Now, thirty-eight has a little bit of a bunny trail. It's on Judah, but. I'll explain why I think that's there and the importance of that when we get to it. So now we're ready to start chapter 37, and the little map uh, that I just gave you summarizes the geography of Joseph's life, Um, and so hopefully you can, I'll refer to it too in a minute, but it just helps you to see where they they are. Jacob is... um, just just to summarize this, I'm sure you remember all this, but Jacob is now back in the land. His family is growing. All of his sons um, uh, are, are growing. Joseph, uh, we estimate, is at the time of, of the narrative in chapter 37, is 17. And the other brothers, therefore, are much older. Jacob is uh, uh, the covenant son of of, uh, Isaac, and he's an older man now. His boys are growing, and what you see in chapter 37, indeed, through much of the rest of the book as the family comes up, it's a very dysfunctional family. This is a a terrible family (laughs) In, in one sense, in terms of how the boys relate to one another and all that stuff. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Now, it keeps telling us that in the Bible, in these, these chapters, that they're in the land of Canaan. 
that they are not ruling. This is their covenant land, but they're not ruling. The Canaanites are. As a matter of fact, it's just as an important side, it's going to be over 450 years till you get to Joshua. So, and it's just reminding us that they're in the land, but this is still Canaanite land. Is this all Canaanite land? Uh, well, this, this would be, this is all, this is Egypt. So that's not, that's a, you know, that's the imperial government of Egypt land, which we'll, we'll see. Because that's the importance of Joseph from the, from the history section of, of the Old Testament among many other things. It, 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 Joseph explains how the clan of Jacob gets to Egypt. And that's, that's a very important piece of information. We must understand what are they doing in Egypt and why are they there and why does there have to be an exodus? <laughs> and that's all Joseph does. Uh, and there's a lot that's about Joseph, but that's one of the important things. Okay? So, so the Canaan, land of Canaan was where Israel is now. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Is it a particular part of Israel or just? Uh, okay, now how are you asking that question? In the ancient well, world trying, or in the modern well, world? Yeah, well, I'm trying to put it in perspective um, in terms, because I'm thinking of the northern kingdom and the su- southern yeah. kingdom. The, yeah. The well, okay, Canaan. Canaan is, I'm talking about ancient Canaan, is from, if you think in modern day terms, the very northern boundary of Lebanon down to the boundary of Egypt. That's Canaan in the ancient world. That whole area. Now, modern-day Israel, when that was carved out by the United Nations in 1947, and then they declared it to be a state in 1948, is much, 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 much smaller than that. Modern-day Israel is very tiny, I mean, as a nation state compared to Canaan, and be very blunt, compared to the land that God promised Abraham. I mean, what God promised Abraham and to his descendants, only it was during David's empire that they got close to living and controlling that land. And then, as you mentioned, and Solomon dies, David's son, then it's divided over because of sin. But anyway, and that's a whole other story. Now, verse 2 tells us that Joseph is 17 years old. He was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought, this is really interesting, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. All right, now, Joseph, young, he's the youngest at this point, and he's mixing it up with the guys, and he comes back to his dad, Jacob, and gives a bad report. Literally, the Hebrew is an evil report. Now, about what? About the sheep? About the goats? Or about the boys? About the brothers? Now, the Bible does not explain to us here what the content of that report was, what the details are, what the specifics are. And immediately, if you're like my children, when they first read that, they said, Joseph's a tattletale. You don't know what that means, do you? 
whether or not you want to characterize that or not, the point is Joseph tells his dad about what his brothers are doing. I and mean, whatever that is, a bad report, an evil report. Now, verse 11, now, Israel, who's Israel? One of the elders. No. no. Jacob. Jacob. Remember, chapter 32, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. That's the covenant name. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And... He made him a robe of many colors. Very, very, very difficult phrase in Hebrew to translate. <coughs> it's usually translated a robe of many colors. It actually, it actually could involve any kind of a garment of distinction. It's used in other parts of the Old Testament of just a beautiful cloak or a cloak with long sleeves. I guess in one sense it doesn't matter. Our Sunday school classes, when I was a little boy, they were always in flannel graphs. You don't even know what that is, but they were flannel graphs. And I can still remember my teacher putting, here's Joseph, and then putting this beautiful coat of all these different colors on Joseph. Now, just think about that for a minute. Just think about verse 3 in the context of family relationships. Just think about what this would have meant, what this would have looked like, what messages are being sent. Is it wise for a father to demonstrably show to the family, I love him more than I do the rest of you. I favor Jim more than the rest of you if you're all my children. And I demonstrably show it by getting him this gorgeous robe, whether it's long robe, flying or colors, or whatever it is. Wise decision? Good parenting skills? <laughs> you would have thought he would have remembered from his parents he saw Jacob, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, I'm not. You're right. There's, there's a whole heritage here. <laughs> he, is, he is reflecting what Isaac did. I mean, it's just the, it's the dysfunction of, of families and the consequences of that dysfunction. The Bible tells the stories, warts and all. doesn't hide anything. So oh, I'm, it, I'm not going to make a big deal out of that, but that's, that's an issue. And whether it was all good, bad, right, or wrong, the points are this has significant consequences. So verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him. Now I want you to notice that's really a significant, there are two very key emotive terms here. Love in verse 3, hate in verse 4. Favor versus animosity. Love versus hate. That's not a good thing to see in a family. And so the consequence is, and they could not speak peacefully to him. <clears throat> now the word, I don't know, do all of your, your translations have peacefully? Unfriendly terms, okay. Because the word ESV, which is what I'm reading from, it comes from the word shalom. You, you, everybody knows that Hebrew word, shalom. It means peace. So what the, if you really want to put it in, in the way a Jewish person would say, 
They could not extend shalom to him. They would not treat him with respect, with dignity, with love. To them, Joseph's an outcast. We don't want anything to do with him. So it's, it's really, it's quite powerful when you see it in the Hebrew language, when you understand they could not treat him with shalom. And that means, in effect, they're treating him like he's a pagan, like he's an outcast, that like he's a Canaanite, which he isn't. But I mean, it's just this disruptive nature of the family. Then what happens next does not enhance, does not, I shouldn't say does not help, it enhances these terrible, terrible dysfunctional situations. Now, Joseph had a dream. As you know, he has two dreams. But Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said, Hear this dream, I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Agricultural symbolism. This is an agricultural society. So you're saying to us, Joseph, that we're going to serve you, huh? Ha! Never. Uh, by the way, was that an accurate dream? Is that a prophetic dream? Is that declaring what's going to happen? Absolutely. Then he has a second dream, more of uh, even more profound. It's more of a celestial, type in the heavens type of dream. Then he dreamed another dream and told his brothers, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. The sun, the moon, the eleven stars are bowing down to me. Notice the number, eleven. Okay, But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What? is the dream that you have dreamed. Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? By the way, is that prophetic? Does that happen? Yes. The whole clan will go down to Egypt. And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Um... It's hard to know here whether the text is making a comment about Jacob in terms of a rebuke or a negative comment about him or just simply declaring something. Jacob didn't forget what his son said. That's hard, but in light of all that Jacob might have represented, it could be a rebuke of him. But it's just, you kind of think, oh, now Joseph, I know you're 17 and... 17-year-olds don't always have a lot of discretion and discernment. But, you know, Joseph, maybe you should have just kept silent about those dreams. <laughs> maybe you should have kept that to yourself. But... Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. So you kind of get the whole setup now. So now look at verse 12. I'm assuming there are any questions. This isn't really difficult, but... Verse 12, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. If you look at your map, you can see where that is. And remember remember how important Shechem is. Uh, Shechem had been where Abraham first did the sacrifice to the Lord and built that altar. 
very early in chapter 12 of Genesis, and then Jacob and so on. Verse 13, and Israel said to Joseph, who's Israel? Jacob. Jacob. Just want to make sure you're tracking with that. Said to Joseph, are not your brothers pastoring flock near Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, here I am. And so he said, go, see, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. Now, we would infer that this probably is something he had done before, which may be what we saw just a moment ago earlier in the chapter, that this was something as the young brother, go up, find out how everybody's doing, is everybody doing okay, the flock's okay? And Joseph came back and said, well, Daddy, it isn't going real well. I'm going to tell you all the things the guys are doing. Well, he's just checking up on them. So, <clears throat> so he went from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. If you look on the map, you can see, remember, Hebron, is down in the south, right on the edge of the Negev Desert. And so it's a fairly good trek up there. And a man found him wandering in the fields and asked, what are you seeking? Well, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away. I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Now you can see that on your map. That is approximately 20 miles to the north or so. So that's a fairly good distance, but anyway, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, very important statement, they conspired against him to kill him. We must assume that this, as I said a moment ago, this was a norm. This was a normal part of the family activity. The youngest, Joseph, would come up, gather information, and report back to dad. Knowing that this was going to happen, they hatch a conspiracy. The next time this happens, we're going to kill him. So as he's coming, they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. And you understand they are saying, you can just imagine it's dripping with irony and cynicism dripping out of the mouth. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Some of your translations might have cisterns, a place where they gathered the rainwater for the animals and so on. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what will become of his dreams. What dreams? The ones that said we're going to bow down to him. <laughs> We're going to interrupt that and show that's just a bunch of silly stuff. We're going to kill him. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Now let's refresh our memories a little bit here. Who's Reuben? He was the oldest son. He's the oldest. He's the firstborn. He was the first one born to Leah. Remember, Leah was the first wife of Jacob. What had happened to Reuben? We read about that last week. He lost, his he lost that role because of his adultery. Remember that? He, in effect, raped his mother's servant <laughs> and uh, lost that right of the firstborn. So... It's, it's just interesting. To, why Reuben? Why did he say that? Well, he is still sort of in that role as firstborn. Maybe he's sensitive. Maybe he's thinking, 
that can regain more solid footing with dad. Because I'm saving the youngest at this point. Don't know, but Reuben steps up and rescues him. Verse 22, and Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And his thought was, as a dash or parenthesis, however your translation is putting it, that he might rescue them out of their hand to restore him to his father. The idea seemed to be in a clandestine, secretive way. He, he's going he's gonna to save Joseph. Again, maybe to get a better standing with dad. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brother, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and threw him into the pit. The pit that was empty, there's no water in it. Verse 25, this is a remarkable statement. Then they sat down to eat. Now, the, the language of this is, is quite, quite clear. They threw him into this cistern, this pit, and he's down there. These are fairly deep because they wanted to capture a good amount of rainwater. And so right next to the pit, they have a meal. You know, it's just, I don't know, callousness? Is that a good word here? They have sacrifice and have a meal. Yeah, I mean, this is just an unbelievable, unbelievable evidence of the hardness of these guys' hearts. They just threw their brother in a pit. And, you know, Reuben has a plan, but they have a plan. We'll see which one works out here in a minute. But, I mean, it's just this callousness and hardness. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now, if you're really interested in the geography of this, Gilead is on the um, east side of the Jordan River. It's today very close to what is the Golan Heights. And the Ishmaelites, now that should ring a bell, they are the descendants of Ishmael. Remember? the son of Abraham to Hagar. And they are now nomadic uh, wanderers, caravan traders, that kind of thing. And so this was a very normal route because this is very close to the King's Highway, one of the major north-south roads. And so they saw these guys. And then their camels, they had gum, balm, myrrh, they're all spices, very expensive things that they were selling. And they were going down to Egypt. So they're traveling from uh, the Golan area, Gilead, Bashan, on the east side of the Jordan. They're going down to Egypt. They're using one of the main highways. Okay, makes sense. Then Judah said, verse 26, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. So when he introduces the word prophet, if we kill him, that's it. But if we sell him, we can divvy it up 11 ways. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, he's our own flesh. You almost think, did he really mean that? Or is he all of a sudden and hit him? Hey, we can make money on this deal, Whatever. Then Midianite traders passed by. Midianite, Ishmaelite, they're all part of that same group. And they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Um, it's what they're doing here, what the text is doing here, what Moses is doing here, is trying to use a 
currency of money that would have meaning. Whether they actually used money or not is disputed. But it's interesting that 20, because the typical slave of the ancient world was bought or valued at between 15 and 30 shekels. So I think the point we're simply to draw is they sold Joseph to these traders for the price of a slave. That's the point it's being made. They sold him to these traders for the price of a slave. And they are headed to Egypt. So they take Joseph with them. I have a question. Yeah. It sounds as though Reuben didn't know that they were going to sell. Actually, Woody, I think we are to conclude none of them had planned to do that. Until Judah, and, and, and until verse 26, until Judah comes up with the idea when he sees these traders, these caravan route guys, coming down the king's highway, and it hits him. Oh, hey, we can make some money on this. We won't feel guilty about killing him. We'll have some money in our pocket. We can still make up the story we said we were going to make up. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to kill an animal and, and presume that somebody killed him. And so, you know, it's just, I don't know. To me, what you see here, again, is just evidence of the callous, hard heart nature of these boys. I mean, I don't want you to, to think, oh, my, Reuben and Judah have redeemed themselves. Well, in a way, but I don't know. It seems to me they both have very duplicitous motives in back of what they're doing. And they're hardly paragons of virtue. But God is using their nefarious motives to get Joseph to Egypt. That's the point if you want to put it in a very succinct way, it is part of God's plan for Joseph to be in Egypt. And this is how he gets to Egypt, the duplicity and evil of his brothers. Um, There's one word you would put over Jacob's family. It's duplicity. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. Is there a parallel between these, these 12, 12 <clears throat> tribes? Well, I mean, the 12 tribes come out of all these brothers, but the, um, I'm not sure what you mean by your question. Yes, I think you could draw a parallel. In other words, and this is what Joseph, sorry, this is what Jacob will do in chapter 49 when he issues a little prophetic blessing to each one of his boys. Uh, all of the character traits you see in them will be the character traits of their children and grandchildren, great grandchildren, great great grandchildren, great 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 grandchildren. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, but they're still the covenant people of God. You also see just God's sovereignty in the arrival of the caravan at that particular moment. Because had that caravan not have arrived at that point, maybe Reuben's idea would not have succeeded and they'd have killed him. But that's right. It is. It's the providence of God, as often you see in the narratives of the Bible. The providence of God is all over this story. God is doing what he is wanting to do, using the tools and instruments that, that he desires to use to accomplish his purposes. It's great. So, great. so whenever I read something like this, I have to think, too, about God's providence in my life. Mm. Uh, you know, all of our lives about 
things don't just happen. Mm. You know, you meet people or you get a job offer or you meet a particular mm. lady who's going to be your wife mm. or yeah. somebody encourages you in your profession yeah. or in your faith. And right. None of that just happens. That's right. That is a word, and it's, it's a word that we should use a lot in our lives when we talk about God. Uh, and if you heard Jim use that, providence, God's providence. God's providence is real. And as Jim said, I think every one of us, we could go around the table, we could spend the rest of the hour on that. Just give me two illustrations in your life of God's providence. And I don't, I don't want to do that, but it's just, that's, that's true. You know, I had one time, years ago, a pastor said to me, and I, I think it's absolutely correct. When it comes to God, there's no such thing as a coincidence. You have to think about that for a minute. There's no such thing as a coincidence. Because you're, you, you will at first think of all the wonderful, very positive blessings. But you also have to factor into it the trials and difficulties as well. Because our favorite verse is James 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And you say, well, wait a minute, I don't want that verse. I just want the blessing stuff. Positive. But God's providence is real. But in the, in the positive uh, sense, um, it is amazing. And I I think all of us could, I could do it in my life. Absolute amazing things that have happened where one thing happens and it just leads to a whole bunch of other things happening. If that one little person, that one person had not come across my life or that one circumstance had not occurred, the rest of my life would have been very, very different. And that's, that's what you see in the Bible. In the Bible, the Bible wants us to constantly reach the conclusion God is sovereign and his providence is real. That's why next Wednesday morning, when we wake up and find out who the president is, remember something. Regard, I don't want to get into politics. Just, I don't know where you want. I want to talk about it. It's the worst presidential choice in the history of my lifetime. I can't believe the two people we're looking at as potential presidents. I just can't believe that we've fallen that far, that we have two people like that. But anyway, regardless of that, remind yourself when you wake up and you hear who the president, God's still sovereign. His providence is still real. His major purpose is still redemptive. And he's going to accomplish his purposes because the next key event from God's perspective is the return of his son. So just be reminded of those four things next Wednesday morning. Some of you will be in depression. Some of you will need therapy. Some of you will be happy. Whatever that case may be. Verse 30. Actually, verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit, the assumption is, and I think that's obviously, the assumption is Reuben, for whatever reasons, tending some of the flock or whatever, Reuben wasn't there when this transaction with the Ishmaelites occurred. He tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy's gone. I, where shall I go? And they took Job's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many collars and brought it to their father and said, This we found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. What is significant about whether it is your son's robe or not? They aren't uh, associated. Yeah, they didn't say, Well, this is our brothers. They didn't say it that way. Whether it's your son. 
So, I mean, you just, this is a horrible, horrible cover-up. This is a horrible, dastardly act to deceive their father, who is the master of deception, again. The master deceiver is being deceived by his children. So you have, again, the contrast between what Reuben wanted to do. He finds out that the boy's gone, and then they, whether he is the one who comes up, but it says they, so they kill a goat, and it's the blood of the goat that's on the, the, the robe. In verse 33, he identified it. It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. There the conclusion Jacob is, re- is, uh, is reaching. And Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his sons many days. Um, and I know you know this, but tearing your garments, putting sackcloth, that, that's ancient Near Eastern ways of mourning. So it's a very common thing to do. Verse 35, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Now, I want you to see what is happening here. Uh, Jacob is is mourning and continues to mourn. No one is able to comfort him, and he's it's, it's almost like a statement of depression and hopelessness. I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. I'm going to die mourning. Sheol is used in the Old Testament of hell, but I don't think that's what he means because it's most of the time Sheol is just used as a metaphor for the grave. I'm going to die mourning. I'm never going to stop mourning. Why? Remember, he's a favorite son, you know, all that. So that's the father wept. Now, while all this is going on, verse 36 concludes the chapter. Midianites sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So they didn't sell Joseph to another trading group, didn't sell Joseph to a, um, a slave trader in Egypt, they didn't sell Joseph to a merchant, they didn't sell Joseph to a Um, a nobleman in the southern part of the Nile. (coughs) To whom did they sell him? One of the top officials in the center of the Egyptian empire, right next to Pharaoh. And we even have his name, Potiphar. He's the captain of the Pharaoh's elite guard. Coincidence? Happenstance? (laughs) Or providence? This is what God wanted when Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States during the Civil War, uh, my own view is that Lincoln came to faith in Christ during the Civil War, but whether that's accurate or not, Lincoln struggled with how, how do I factor what is happening to this country with the Civil War, where both sides are just experiencing unbelievable losses. He had made the decision to Uh, free the slaves. Emancipation Proclamation was step one. And uh, he sat down. We found this after he died. And uh, it's it's now very famous, uh, that little document. But he wrote it out on a sheet of paper about six inches wide, a series of statements. And he was struggling with, 
how do I factor God into this? Because both sides pray to the same God. Both sides read the same Bible. Both sides have declared national days of thanksgiving. Both sides have declared national days of prayer and fasting. Where's God in this? And he reached this conclusion. God is on neither side. He's on his own side. And God is accomplishing things for which we, and this is the word he used, we are his mere instrument. And then he reached the conclusion that this civil war is God's righteous judgment on this nation for slavery. And then if you, we, again, we found that little slip of paper after he died. By we, I mean it's in the archives because it was found after he died. But if you look at that little sheet of paper and then you look at his second inaugural address, it's the same kind of conclusion. I believe the second inaugural address of Lincoln is the greatest inaugural address ever given by the president. And at any time, at any time, I encourage you to Google it sometime, second inaugural address, read that. How many times he quotes from scripture. And he says, God is not on either side in this war. God is accomplishing his greater purposes. And then he issues everybody, because by then, by, by March of 1865, it was clear that the South days were numbered. As a matter of fact, the surrender will occur only in a few days. Anyway, um, everybody expected Lincoln to offer these triumphant notes of victory and so on. And what he does in the second half of the inaugural address is calls on the nation to bind itself again with charity, with grace and forgiveness, we must bind up this nation's wounds. And it's an incredible demonstration of just the opposite. Instead of victorious triumphalism, now we must show grace and compassion to put the country back together. We've had very few leaders like that in our history. But he reached the same conclusion that we see here. The Midianites and the brothers, they're just instruments God is using to accomplish his purpose. Now, every one of those instruments is still accountable for every decision they make and every plot they hatch. It's the railroad tracks. Remember, I've drawn that on the board many times. I mean, it's just a, it's just a profound lesson in theology. It's a profound lesson in doctrinal truth. God is in control and God is accomplishing his purpose. God wanted Joseph in Egypt. Now he's in Egypt, in the court of one of the most powerful men in the imperial Egyptian empire. Kind of exciting, isn't it? Is God still doing the same thing today? Yes. Well, thank you for reaching that conclusion. <laughs> All right, any question about chapter 37? Uh, yes, sir. One question I have is, Jacob, they call Jacob, but I thought God named Israel. He, that's correct. He did change it. Well, they did. We read that earlier several times in this chapter. The answer to your question is um, you will just see this interchangeably throughout the book of Genesis, indeed, through the rest of the Old Testament. Sometimes the people of, of Israel will be called the children of Jacob, sometimes they'll be called the children of Israel. They are interchangeable terms. But almost always, I maybe should say always, but I better be cautious there. Almost always, 
when Israel is used either as the name of Jacob or as the name of the people, it's in a covenantal relationship. It's reminding you, the reader, and reminding those who are partaking or whatever of the covenant relationship between God and Jacob and the covenant relationship of God and the people of Jacob, people of Israel. All right, yeah, please. In, in um, verse um, verse three, speaks of, speaks of Joseph as being the son of Jacob's old age, the son of his old age, but he's not the he's not the youngest son. No, Benjamin is. Benjamin, yeah. son. Benjamin is. And Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Yeah. Um, you, you, you said something about, uh, maybe just kind of flipped it. You said that, that um, Joseph was the youngest, and, and uh, in fact, he's not. Yeah, if I, I don't remember how I said If I said that, I, I, I shouldn't have said that because that's not accurate. Ben, Benjamin is the youngest of the boys, that's right. But at this point, um, the focus is not on Benjamin, or it's on Joseph, because he's the key guy to get down to Egypt. Did, did, you know, maybe Jacob had some feelings about Benjamin? Well, he, he does, and you'll see that when, uh, at the, really near the end of the book, when um, Joseph gives the instructions to the, the sons who are down there to try to get food. Uh, before I do, I, I, want to, I want the youngest son of your father to come down here. And um, Jacob comes on glue. You'll see that he comes on glue. I'm, I'm not saying Jake. Benjamin's my favorite boy now, and I'm going to lose him like I lose jo- lost Joseph. No, I'm not taking. So yeah, I think what you what we are led to conclude as we get near the end of the book is that Benjamin replaces Joseph as the father's favorite. Chapter thirteen. How, how many sons and daughters? Well, Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter, Dinah. And, that, and, that, that's, and then part, part of when it talks about daughters, that is also referring, and that's a, a, a typical Hebrew reference, to some of the wives of the boys. Follow me? And they're <coughs> and, and, well, they're servants, yeah. But they're wives. Now, chapter 38, I don't think we'll, we'll get this finished, but we can get it started. Chapter 38 is a bizarre story, and it doesn't seem to fit because you go from Joseph to Judah. We saw him up earlier in, in, in chapter 37 when he is the one who sees the caravan coming and let's sell him type of, of uh, conclusion, which is what they end up doing. What's the important, I want to ask you a couple questions to really drive home why I think this is here, why this chapter is important. What's the importance of Judah? Now, right now, if you didn't know anything else in the Bible, all you would know is that Judah is just one of the sons of Jacob. But in terms of the entire, which I think many of you know it, the whole corpus of Scripture, what's the importance of Judah? Well, that's right. He was, he was the instrument that was used to keep Joseph from being killed. But in the longer sweep of things, Joel? 
kind of the royal line. Uh, to Absolutely. Judah, Judah will be the royal line. When, when Jacob gives the prophecies about the boys in chapter 49, he will say, the scepter shall never depart from your line. And that, that alerts us to something. That alerts us to what is going to become extremely important in the rest of biblical history. Judah, all right, let me put it this way. From Judah will come David. And from David will come Jesus. Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So chapter 38 tells us about the redemption of Judah. Judah does despicable things in this chapter, but in the end of the chapter, he will change. His character and temperament will undergo an important change. You saw it in verse 26 of chapter 37. You're going to start seeing it more and more. Judah is emerging as the leader. And so we need to find something else out about the character of Judah, just like all the boys, conniving, dishonest, self-serving, that God has to change him. And this remarkable story about Tamar and Judah. So let's begin it. And it happened at that time, we are assuming that the narrator this is Moses who wrote this, wants us to understand, okay, this situation with Joseph is now over. About this time, Judah went down from his brothers, from his brothers, and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Adulamite, a Canaanite. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite she is never given a name, whose name, the Canaanite's name is Shua. The, the girl's name isn't. The Canaanite's name is Shua. Father Shua. He took her and went into her. Went into her is euphemistic Hebrew language for he had sexual intercourse with her. Now, do you understand what's happening here? Here's Judah violating Chapter 28, verse 1, violating everything God had declared, don't marry Canaanite women. Remember, Abraham was very concerned about whom his son Isaac was going to marry. So what did he do? He sent Eliezer way up to the family home to get a family relative to marry Isaac. And so then Rebekah, very, very concerned about the safety of her boy Jacob, when he saw is angry with him, sends him back up. And where does he get his wife? From the family relations, Laban's girls. But Judah, now notice the language, intentionally, willfully, moves in among the Canaanites. And she's a beautiful Canaanite woman. Don't know her name. Her father's name is Shua, and he takes her. 
verse 3, she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur, E-R. She conceived again, so in effect, Judah has married this girl, and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. We're not sure where that is. Small little community. All right, now, let's just summarize this, and then I want to set the stage for next week. I hope you see what Judah has done here. It's horrible. He's taken a Canaanite for his wife. And she has borne him how many boys? Three. She is now his wife. These are his children. And all three of the boys are going to die. So come back next week to see how this is all resolved because it creates a very significant dilemma. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for um, our study in the book of Genesis as we're concluding this great book, uh, focusing now on Joseph. We're seeing the, the evidence of your providence, of your sovereignty, of your accomplishing your divine purposes uh, in history. In this case, it was so important for the salvation of the children of Israel to in Egypt, for how are they going to get to Egypt? How are they going to be accepted in Egypt? How are they going to be welcomed in Egypt? Well, the key to that is Joseph. And chapter 37 explains how Joseph gets to Egypt and the role he's going to play in Egyptian history, as well as in saving the clan of Jacob. So this is very exciting material, but it also is important for us to make the application. Joseph is going to be a man of impeccable integrity in Egypt. He's going to serve in a pagan kingdom, but representing you and representing uh, infallible and remarkable integrity uh, in the midst of that kingdom. And he will represent you well, which is what you want us to do as well. We also affirm that if you, your providence was real in, in Joseph's life, your providence, as Jim mentioned a moment ago, is real in each one of our lives. Lord, you use all circumstances in our lives to accomplish your purposes in our lives so that we can then be used of you in whatever particular specific ways you want to use us. So Lord, therefore, we want to be always seeing things from your perspective and having implicit and complete trust in you. Help us to have that. Uh, we ask your blessing and watch care over us in these next days, and we just pray for our country, pray for your will to be done, and in all that we do as citizens of this country and as representatives of you, may we represent you well. In Christ's name.